Today we continue our series, Parenting Beyond Your Ability, and I was uh, planning to bring the announcement that Anne is pregnant, <laughs> but we don't have that announcement today, so, <laughs> yeah. I know some of you have said, you know, parenting is way beyond my capacity for a whole variety of reasons, like uh, I'm not there yet in life, it hasn't happened in life, it's too late in life, I've already done that in life, uh, but you know here at Evergreen, uh, this is for all of us. And uh, because we are a community together. And if you've been here these first two weeks of the series, you know that we start with these three E words. These are our goals together. Uh, regardless of where you are, uh, there's something for you. So we want to encourage those of you that are parents so that you can raise great kids. We want to educate those of you that will be parents in the future. And we want to equip all of us to serve our kids here at Evergreen and beyond. You know, what we believe is that raising great kids requires a community. We always start with the Bible. We end with Jesus. There's a lot of both in the middle. And it is very apparent from God's design in Scripture that it takes a community to raise and pass on faith to others. Anne made reference to a, a, a very recent book, a current study last week. We could recommend it to you. It's called Faith for Exiles. And I want to give you uh, four pieces of information that are just astounding to me. Uh, the survey was taken among young adults who have a vibrant, ongoing faith. They've transitioned out of their home, uh, their, their family, out of their home church. They've made faith a vibrant, resilient part of their life going forward. And they share in common four characteristics. In fact, in the study, I'm about to give you the stats are 56% to 81% of the vibrant faith young adults said that they had these things going on in their life. Here we go. Number one, when growing up, I had close personal friends who were adults. Two, I had someone other than family I could go to for advice on personal matters. Three, I feel valued by people in my life who are older than me. And four, I often look to those older than me for advice. And some of you high mileage units like me have felt that you don't have a lot to contribute, and I want to tell you that you have a ton of value to contribute. Last Sunday, Anne's mom, Bonnie, uh, about to uh, turn 90, was uh, holding babies down here in the nursery. And uh, you would want her holding your baby. She was the director of nursing for two hospitals, and she ran an OB department in a third hospital. You want 90-year-old Bonnie holding your baby. We all contribute to making this the best place to raise kids that we possibly can. Now, I know that parenting is a unique, awesome, and challenging experience. It's rewarding, but it can certainly be stressful. And maybe you're at this place, or maybe you remember when life has been like this, but I love these parenting quotes that pick up some of the challenges. Here we go, number one. Okay, the thing starts at seven. We need to start eating at six, which means we need to start getting the kids ready last night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, after all this parenting, I'm going to become a hostage negotiator. Less stress. <laughs> yeah. Or, do you know what takes longer uh, than a kid telling a story? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've had one of those, or it was your sibling. What do you do today? 40 minutes later, and in the, in the beginning was, yeah, okay. Uh, you think grocery shopping would ever be the highlight of your day? Have kids. Yeah, yeah. And I love this last one. 
I put all of my symptoms into WebMD, and it turns out I just have kids. <laughs> yeah. So parenting is challenging. Hey, we have declared that this is a safe zone. No guilt, no condemnation. Of course, we all have regrets. This is not about that. All of us have failed. All of us have parents who failed. We're going to fail, but here's the deal. It's about today forward. What are we learning today? How is God moving us forward today? And we all have some things we're going to learn together. I want you to think about this. It's astounding to me how we have culturally put norms together. There are some jobs that you can't even begin until you have four, six, ten years of extended education for, and then you're a novice. Parenting, I'll pop one out, they put the thing in your hands on the way home, and there you go. That, that's what culture requires. Our society demands that you actually get a license to drive, but you can take a kid home with nothing. I remember the first dad moment. We got home from the hospital, and, and Ann hands me the kid, and she says, I'm going to take a shower, and I'm standing there saying, Lord God, what have we done? I don't <laughs> know the first thing about this. Yeah. What I have learned about parenting is this, however, and here it is on the screen. It's on your notes. You might want to take a look. Our children learn more from, from what we do than what we say. Isn't it so true? More is caught in the home than is taught in the home. I heard this great quote on parenting. I think you'll like it. You shouldn't be worried because your kids aren't listening to you. You should be worried because they are watching you. <laughs> yeah. More is caught than is taught. So Moses gives this farewell speech at the end of his life to a transitioning nation, and he says these words. They're familiar to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. So here is our big question. It's a question for those of you that are parents. It's a question for those of you that aren't parents yet. It's those of you that aren't parents ever. It's those of you that have been. Here it is. The question for this community collectively is, how can we impress our kids without fighting with them? <laughs> you know, sometimes it's easy to win the argument and force the right behavior and lose the heart. And I want to thank you. you know, some of you grew up in a home where that was the story. Your parents probably doing their best, probably frustrated, probably exhausted, probably pouring out their life so that you could all survive. When you came to the moment of really needing to know why, their response to you was, because I'm your parent, as they pulled rank. Or because if I don't, if you don't, I'm going to beat the snot out of you as they pulled strength on you. And we force the right behavior, and we lose the heart. I want to thank you for being a church, a community of faith that applauds kids being kids. Now, I have nothing but appreciation for the two country churches I grew up in, but I do also have some funny memories, because we did weird stuff. 
And one of the things that I thought was weird was we thought God lived in the building. And so we treated the building with some kind of odd kinds of what I think were artificial respect things. I understand the heart. I don't argue with that at all. But one of the things was we as kids had to behave like we were really serious, unhappy, old people. And I remember that sometimes, you know, when that behavior would be enforced, like, don't you run in church like God was old and couldn't stand children running or something. And, you know, they, the, the rules got enforced, but the heart behind that, which was sincere on their part, was totally lost. I remember here at Evergreen, <clears throat> it was a few years ago, I was down uh, on the office youth, youth wing, and there was a kid who broke away from mom and dad in the lobby and just went tearing down the hall toward the restroom. And I smiled and chuckled inside. And it dawned on me, isn't that so cool that a kid can run to the bathroom at Evergreen and not have some old crank chew him out for bothering God? <laughs> yeah. Well, that wasn't in my notes. I need to get going here. So what the heck? Here we go. So you know that I love bell curves, and I only bring them out like once a year, once a year. So this is my Sunday. If you don't like bell curves and data, you come back next week, and we'll talk about the Bible and God and everything. But I'm here with the, the bell curve today. So on the horizontal axis, that's time. And on the vertical axis, it's the share, amount of shared responsibility between a parent and a child. So down there on the left-hand side, how much responsibility for, does the baby have? The answer is zero. Yeah, thank you very much. Not very much. Actually, that's not true. The kid is responsible to make a lot of noise when she is unhappy. That's right. And the parent is responsible to respond to that and do everything else. So initially, we are providing care and protection. And then we move into this toddler stage, and now there's directing that takes place. And guess what? Toddler now starts developing some power. She figures out that she's short, but she's quite powerful. And so you have these conversations, and you're walking down the street, you're about to cross, and you point out to her that there are two people over there, and one of them tells you to stop, and the other one tells you to walk. And, uh, and when, the, when the one isn't walking, you can't go, and when the one is walking, you, you can walk, and, and you direct them about that. And then if she decides that she's going to walk when the person isn't walking, you further direct her by physically restraining her so she doesn't walk in front of the car. We understand that. But you're beginning to let go. And then what's the next one? This is horrible. This is miserable for everyone. Sometimes the kid wants to be coached and be extended the opportunity to ideate and come up with options and suggest the best one. Sometimes the kid wants for you to say, go talk to Jesus about that. Let's have a conversation tomorrow, and you can tell me what he said. And sometimes the kid just says, tell me what to do here. And sometimes the kid doesn't even want to tell you what he's planning to even think about doing. It is messy. And as parents, it's not fun to coach. You know exactly what you want the kid to do. And you just want to direct. And you want them to respond and salute but you know that you have to develop this mature human. And so you say things like, so what are two or three options that you would think about you could do here? And what are the reasons that you might do each of those? And you're painfully coaching them through toward a good decision. And then it's really difficult when they make a choice that's good enough, but is not the perfect one that you would have come up with. And you release them to that. And eventually, if things go well in life, there's a peer. Now, this doesn't mean that you're best friends. You might be. That's not the point. And it does not mean that you stop being the parent. You're as maternal and you're as paternal as you ever felt. And you still feel like they're this small package you brought home from the hospital. 
but the relationship that you craft with the person is one of mutual respect and exchange as you release them to be wildly responsible in their life as you release yourself to take that personal responsibility. Now, as things move forward, I've been told that sometimes we can move back in this circle of life to the coaching thing. And, you know, uh, I don't think my children are in the room right now. I can say this. So I sneak one by them at my advanced age. I ask them questions. They think I'm being respectful. I'm asking for information. Help me out here, right? So if they're not going to ask me coaching questions, I have them give me coaching answers. It's been very, very helpful for me. And then at some point, some of us will, will get or are being directed just a bit. Having a conversation last week with Bonnie, and she's about to visit some of her peers um, uh, on her way as Anne takes them down, uh, her down to Yuma in a few days. And, uh, and this, this peer couple, they're about 90 as well, and the woman decided that this year she's going to stop driving. The husband's going to continue driving. Now, I don't know if they had any interaction with, with children or anything else about that, but we have known of these stories where, where a child will intervene and say, you know, um, I'm 70 years old. I've, I have some street cred about this. And dad, I think probably you should stop driving at 95 or whatever. That, this is a coaching moment. It may become a directing moment at that point. Your license is going to go away. Tough stuff. And then I can't even imagine this, folks. I don't want to go here. My kids don't want me to go here. Starts with diapers, ends with diapers. This is the thing at the other end. May that be brief, that brief period of time down there. But I do say to parents this, treat your kids well. Yeah, treat them well. Yeah. (laughs) Now, I've been waiting for a book to be released, and it finally came out Tuesday. Uh, When Anne and I mention resources, it's often a subtle hint that if you're interested in this, you should probably buy it. Sometimes I mention resources Not because you should buy it or read it, but because it's appropriate to identify the source of some material. And this book is one of those. Don't buy it because I'm giving you the abbreviated executive summary this morning. This is the guts of the book. But it is called Wildwood, The Epic Journey from Adolescence to Adulthood. And the two authors, both researchers, one from Harvard, one from uh, UCLA, have spent their life studying the adolescent life of animals, from uh, mosquitoes to alligators to elephants, including humans. And they have coined this phrase called wildwood. It's this period of time which is between childhood and adulthood, wildhood. And every kind of living creature experiences this season of life. And in every species, there are four different challenges that are experienced. Now, I'm going to be brief, but I'm going to be redundant. I'm going to give you the four challenges. I'm going to state them in another way, and then I'm going to summarize it for those of you that take notes, but you write like I do, not well. And I'm actually going to summarize with four words, all of which start with S. So here it is. Challenges in adolescence. Number one, how to stay safe. Number two, how to navigate social hierarchies. Three, how to communicate sexually. And four, how to leave the nest and care for oneself. Challenging. Restated. Avoiding danger. Finding my place in a group. Learning the rules of attraction. Developing self-sufficiency and purpose. 
Here's the summary with four S words. Safety, status, sex, self-reliance. Hmm. So yesterday I was coming home from Southern California, spoke at a pastor's retreat, and, and then I interviewed uh, three candidates for a student ministries pastor, and uh, was at the Burbank airport uh, waiting at the gate to fly home, and I saw a family, an honored family, you know, if you have special status in life, you get to go on the plane first. They really had special status. They had four kids. I would guess the oldest daughter was probably 10, and then down to an infant, and they confirmed what I've observed about life. The smaller the person, the more equipment is required for them to move. Yeah. So the 10-year-old had a little backpack, and so did her younger brothers. But the baby, like, had a bob stroller. You know, the, the mom was carrying a big backpack, which was the diaper bag kind of thing. The, the dad, you know, he had all of this equipment. And why do we do this for the infants? It's all about the safety, isn't it? And what that family was doing was modeling what it looks like to help their kids move forward in life. You know, they didn't have a stroller for the toddler, but there was a car seat that was being packed, but there wasn't a car seat for the 10-year-old. And by the way, she didn't get much attention as I watched the interaction among the six of them, but she was responsible for that backpack with her own stuff in it as well as they're socializing her into that bell curve of responsibility. They're going to be having some conversations with her very soon, if they haven't, about her sexuality and attraction and what it means to be safe and what it means to be a healthy human. And they're going to discover that she doesn't want to talk to them about sex any more than they want to talk to her about sex. And they're going to hope that they're part of a community where there are trusted adults that can engage that conversation or people just ahead of her in life that would be safe to have those kinds of conversations about. Now, here's the astounding thing that I discovered from this study. It'll make sense from you, but I think it's very profound. Current teenagers are experiencing something in life that no humans have ever experienced to date. Their parents have not experienced. The parents may be on the younger end of millennials, might be on the top end of, of, uh, or younger end of Jacks, or topper end of millennials, but their parents did not experience this. Here it is. Teens today are trying to navigate life in two distinct worlds on their path toward adulthood. The face-to-face world that all of us have been socialized in, and a digital world that no other generation has come into adolescence with that breadth of digital experience. And we don't know what the digital rules are. We don't know what the norms are. It's the wild, wild west. What we do know is that you don't navigate the real life world and the digital world the same way. And it's messy stuff. If there was ever time for parents to sense their need to really trust in Jesus, it is now. It is Jesus that goes with your kid to her device. It is Jesus that goes with your son to his peers. Jesus is the only 24-7 presence. And by the way, he cares more for your kid than you do, and he's a lot better at getting through than you will ever be. You really can trust him. And by the way, you know, in this game of parenting, you only have about 936 weeks to give it your best shot. 
Now, if some of you are saying, that's good news. We're going to be done with this thing. But you know, on that bell curve, I just encourage you this way. You may not like your kid right now. We get that. Try to be nice. The kid's going to get older. Won't be that age all the time. You can move through this thing together. And the Bible gives us some really powerful and helpful information. Before we go back to Scripture today, which we're really grounding our whole talk in, I want to just mention something to those of you that are uh, older parents uh, as I am. You know, um, we all try to figure out what does that peer relationship look like with children, right? And, uh, and I don't know that I've nailed it by any means, but uh, a while ago, uh, I've defined my major relationships in life, and I decided to assign myself three verbs for every category of major relationship. So, as a leader here at Evergreen, I have three verbs that if I do those well over time, I think I will have primarily fulfilled my service to you. No, I'm not going to tell you what those are. (laughs) (laughs) But I have three verbs that I've applied to our adult children, our four adult children, two by marriage. And those verbs are initiate, ask, encourage. So I remind myself of that every day in my little devotional template, but I've never asked them what they thought about it. So uh, a few weeks ago when uh, when Jordan and Raleigh and I uh, went down uh, to the uh, Oregon-Auburn game uh, in Dallas, Texas, uh, we were having this conversation about life and relationships, and I so I just uh, outed myself, and I said, uh, I should probably tell you guys what I think is helpful for you, and I try to do, because uh, maybe... It's not helpful for you, and you might like to come up with some different words. So let's talk about our relationship. And I just said, so when I think about you, I think about doing these things, to initiate, to ask, and to encourage. And of course, the huge conversationalist that they wanted to be about the relationship with the old man was, sounds about right to us. (laughs) So they're stuck with it, regardless of what they actually thought about it. Maybe that'll be helpful for you. By the way, there's three words that I remind myself to say. I'm 64 years old. These words are still not easy for me to say. I love you. My own enculturation was such that those words weren't spoken, that love was experienced and it was felt, but it wasn't said. I have developed patterns and routines of saying I love you, but it is not natural and it is not easy but I think it's the right thing to do. Well, enough with messing with old people. Let's go back to the Bible. So God says to us, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. I want you to notice a quote that comes out of the book that 96 of you parents that start today and then on Tuesday launching into your parenting groups are going to be reading. I just love this. It says this, the only thing that separates a living faith from a ritualistic orthodoxy is one word, one idea, one compelling force. Say it with me. Love. Yeah. You see, Moses spent his entire life trying to get people to obey God's rules. How successful was he? Massive failure. They were a massive failure. Was the problem God's rules? No, they were great rules. So Moses is about to die. By the way, he's 120. He's given his last speech, and he decides to take a different tact. So he has a fresh perspective. 
He doesn't change the rules, but he changes the point of view. And he connects in one sentence all of the dots that were supposed to have tied together all of those rules. And the dots that he gave was, were, that the, the, the commonality was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You know, what we learn is this. If you want to pass on faith, you, you as a parent, you as a grandparent, you as a sibling, you as an aunt or an uncle, you as, you as a member of Evergreen, if you want to be a part of passing on vibrant faith to the next generation, it has to be transferred relationally. Anytime you pass down rules or rituals or laws out of the context of love, you are passing on an empty religion. One of the most powerful things that a parent can do is to communicate in a style that values the relationship. Now, as the passage goes on in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses anticipates a question that has been asked of every parent. You know that from the first words he said, that of the first handful he learned was the word, why? And there are times that you wished why would have never been invented. Why? Why? And if you're tired and frustrated, you want to pull a hierarchy power play. Because I said so becomes a classic answer. Because I'm your parent. Because it's the right thing to do. And if you really want to go power play, because God wants you to, right? Yeah, why? Well, Moses had a little bit different advice here. And I love that. Because Moses is about to go away, and he wants faith to be transferred to successive generations. And so he's letting people know how to respond to the legitimate question that kids are going to have, why do we do it this way? Why did God give us those crazy Ten Commandments? Why did he support it with another 200 commandments? What's all, what are all those rules for? Why, why, why? Isn't that what a kid asks? And you'll notice that the advice Moses gives is a legitimate, respectful answer that echoes across the millennia to today. This is why. This is why the Roth family has its own rules. And this is why our friends, this family, they have different rules. But these are the Roth family rules. This is why we at Evergreen, we do things this green. This is the Evergreen way. Other churches do some other things. We're very respectful about that, but this is the Evergreen way. Well, why? Why do we do those things? Notice as we pick it up in Deuteronomy 6, verse 20, Moses gives parental advice. Here we go. In the future, when your son asks you, what's the meaning of all these stipulations, decrees, and laws that the Lord commanded you. Notice that the son is saying commanded you. He's not even owning them. These are your stupid rules that some God gave you. What the heck, right? Moses says, tell him. Oh, I love this. Here's the answer to why. Well, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the, the Lord sent signs and wonders. They were great. They were horrible on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But, but he brought us out from there to bring us in 
and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. And so the Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to live in the fear of our God. Here's the why. So that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. Wow. Why, Dad, do we do it this way? Why, why do we follow Jesus? Why do we believe the Bible? Why don't we do that? Because God's trustworthy. That's why. Parents, the most important thing you can do when you fight for the heart of your kids is to build a relationship with them that is trustworthy. Model God's relationship with God's people in your relationship with your kids. Brad and Audrey, as in four or five weeks when you're sent from here, it's going to be joyful because of what God's doing in your life. It's going to be thrilling because we get to do this at Evergreen. We're like the hops. If anybody hits home runs in three consecutive games, they're brought up to the big leagues. But it's going to be horrible. And one of the reasons it's going to be wrenching is because you're trustworthy. See, That's the relationship. So our students have followed you. And the Vortex students hope to follow you because you're trustworthy. Hmm. So Moses answers the question, why, by telling a story. He says, well, the story of our family is that God miraculously delivered us from slavery. We had some really messy stuff in our family that God set us free from. You know, our story is that we trust God because he's committed to us even when we have ignored him and we've done our own thing. And we trust God because he's never stopped leading us, even these 40 years when we just went our own way and griped and complained. And the story of our family is we have never gotten it perfectly right, but God has never once stopped leading us. And the story of our life is God refused to disown us even when we wanted to disown him with our skepticism and our rebellion. So you can love the Lord your God with all you've got because he's trustworthy. See, God always fights for the people that he loves. And that's why Moses can stand at a crossroads of generations of people and say to them, I've given you rules. Oh, there's 10, the 10 big ones. And then they've been outlined with 200 other little supporting ones. But in my closing speech to you, it's not about the rules. It's about the relationship. It's about the why. So when your son says, why the heck when our home gets moldy do we have to tear it down and burn up all the materials? The why is because God doesn't want you living in a toxic, filthy home. Why does God give us rules on how to go to the bathroom out here in the wilderness? Because God loves you so much, if you're traveling and backpacking for 40 years with 2 million other people, you should probably all figure out how you're going to relieve yourself in a hygienic way. 
See, behind the rules, there's someone that's really watching out for you. Behind the Jesus way, there's someone that made you, that loves you, is committed to you, and wants to bring you from whatever messy place you are in, Pharaoh's slavery, and bring you to the place of his promise, the promised land of abundant life. And the rules are part of his guide to say, when that guy is on the screen, you don't walk. But when the other one is on the screen, you walk because he's trustworthy. I threw together a little chart. Okay, you scientists, geeks, I'm getting it all out of my system in one day. Here we go. Made by Jared. Here we go. So on over on the left side, there's Moses. And I'm not going to list his rules. You know the great big ones, the great Ten Commandments. You could list them all over there. But I want you to notice from the passage we read today that at the end of Moses' life, he tells us the why. And this is what he says. Number one, it's about the relationship. This rule is because God is trustworthy. This rule is because God is protecting you with it. This rule is because God is loving you through it. And that rule is because God is committed to your best. And I want to suggest to you as parents, and those of us that love kids and help parents, that if we focus on the relationship of being people who, like God, can be trustworthy and protecting and loving and committed, well, we'll find ourselves fighting, but instead of fighting with the kid about the rules, we'll be fighting with the kid for their best. We give value to the relationship. You know, I think sometimes as I'm talking with parents, I discover that out of their own, their own desire to be good, that they think that their primary role is to help their kids, you know, follow all the rules. Well, listen, the rules may be good, but you didn't do that well either. And part of their life moving forward is stumbling their well forward. Listen, I think you can focus, even in your greatest disappointment, kids, tiny kids, adolescent kids, young adult, kids, adult, I think you can focus even in your disappointment with giving the greatest gifts that you can give your children, which is to demonstrate that you can be trusted over the long haul. That's the gift that God has given you. I love this quote. It comes right out of the book. Those of you that are reading uh, Parenting Beyond Your Capacity, you'll find it there. I think they're so helpful for all of us. Let me just mention them to you as I quickly read them. A child, children's trust in me is broken when I, here we go, discipline and anger, use words that communicate rejection, ignore their voices, don't try to understand who they really are, break my core promises, or take things too serious uh, personally. And I just, I just evoked some pain for some of you. Some of you read those six and said, that is my home of origin. They had that culture dialed in like a science. And I want to grieve with you. And I want to celebrate with you. There's healing. Move forward. Move forward. Let him heal you. Be the generational change. You be the healed generation. You be the one 
following God into the promised land of goodness and blessing. You be the one with his miracles in your life. And then some of you, like parents like me, you read that and go, man, I wish I would have known that a long time ago. I, I wish I would have done better. Of course, there's regrets, aren't there? None of us have gotten it right. Of course, there's forgiveness, and guess what? There's tremendous grace. I want to close with this. Every, uh, <clears throat> every morning when I'm doing my devotions, you know, I'm not very functional the first thing in the morning. Many of you know that. I start with my coffee, with my happy lamp, and my Bible, and Generally, my coffee and my happy lamp help me more than my Bible when I first get started. I'm just, it's a confession I'm making. So I need to have some help. So I have a little template that I read through. <clears throat> and at the end of that template, the last thing I read is a little collection of wisdom. And uh, <clears throat> I picked this up from another source. Uh, but on each day of the week, Monday through Friday, I have a little wisdom section that I read. And I'm going to close today with my Friday section. And while this is written uh, from the point of view of an adult to another adult, I think maybe it makes a lot of sense as we're relating to children and to students as well. How to keep a disappointment from becoming an argument. <laughs> disagreement. Welcome the disagreement. Distrust your first impulsive instinct. Control your temper. Listen first. Look for areas of agreement. Be honest. Promise to think over their ideas and study them carefully. Thank them for, sincerely for their interest. <laughs> Postpone action to give both sides time to think through the problem. De-escalation is always helpful. You know, I think it's easier to Focus as a parent on the need for a child to earn trust. Isn't that our tendency? Earn trust and I'll extend more responsibility to you. I'm not challenging that per se, but I want to leave you with an amazing challenge. Are you glad God didn't approach the equation that way for you? Did you notice that what God said was, you're probably not going to be worthy of trust most of your life, but I'm going to be absolutely trustworthy. Maybe, maybe as a community, it would make a ton of sense for us to say, we are going to fight for the heart and we're going to be trustworthy. Let's pray. God, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your healing mercy that has come and is coming today to heal us in our brokenness, the brokenness that has been put on us by others in our life that didn't get this, may have tried their best, or they may have been mean and malevolent, but we are broken as a result. And God, we come to you, the great Father and healer, and we ask for your gracious healing in our souls. We ask that you would help us, Lord, be men and women passionately following you because you love us so much. <clears throat> Would you help parents today, Lord, have wisdom and grace and patience in the moment, Lord, to be trustworthy in their own lives and be discerning and wise about how to direct and how to coach and what to do and what, how to handle rules and relationships. It's all a part of a big mess and stew. But, oh, God, we need you. We trust you right in the middle of that. And may we as a community, Lord, be trustworthy 
in the lives of the next generations. We pray that in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me and say amen. amen.